All right, Dave, we are continuing with the uh, lead up to the 1905 Russian Revolution. Uh, we have um, we have talked a bit about some of the context, uh, what Russia was like in 1900. But, um, you know, when you, when we were in high school, you taught us a kind of a scheme of like the various things you need for a revolution. <laughs> um, <laughs> you remember and- that? Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, I remember. And so one of them is uh, a, a specifically weak and I believe intransigent type of leader or yeah. ruler. And so I think that's a good little intro to Nicholas II, Tsar Nicholas II. It is. Weak, weak and stubborn. You know, I, I look at his portraits and it to me it looks like Charles, <laughs> Charles I of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, who famously lost his head in the English Civil War. And there are quite a few traits of this fellow, Nicholas II, that remind me of Louis XVI. I mean, we'll, we'll bring them up when we get there. So Nicholas was the grandson of Tsar Alexander II, assassinated, and the son of Alexander III, uh, a very dominant man. So Nicholas grew up shy and awkward, and he was never trained to be the next czar. His father died uh, in his 40s. I forget the exact age, but he was in great physical condition. He was something of a strong man, and his sudden death shocked everybody. So Nicholas comes to the throne with no training whatsoever. As you can imagine, he lacked confidence, and he compensated for that by being rigid and stubborn. And that's a combination we've we've seen before. He did not like confrontation or opposition, so he avoided them. He would uh, agree with each one of his ministers. He would meet them separately, never never as a group if he could help it. And he would agree with them, uh, even when they contradicted each other. And then, of course, once they were gone, he would agree with the next minister that came along. Surprisingly... Uh, poorly educated in in a sense. He had very little understanding of the world, including Russia. Uh, He was educated at home. He had apparently a very happy childhood, good for him, but he rarely mixed with other children. Even as an adult, he he traveled from palace to private estate on special trains or, or on the imperial yacht. So it's described as he he lived in a bubble of privilege uh, and he had a super simplistic view of Russia. He imagined that all the peasants were happy, just like the ones who worked on the imperial estate. So happy, loyal peasants everywhere. That's what he figured. Of course, he had never been anywhere other than the imperial estate. So a bit of a dream, dreamland. Uh, not a stupid fellow. He spoke French, German, English, uh, liked history, was not too keen on law or economics, though. And apparently he had excellent manners. So did Charles I of England. Uh, one of his ministers, Count Vita, said, I had rarely come across a better-mannered young man. His good breeding conceals all shortcomings. So it makes you wonder, wait, well, how many shortcomings? Uh, at 19, he did his military service in the Preobrazhensky Guards Regiment, and he loved it. 
According to his cousin, Grand Duke Alexander, Nicholas developed an immense liking for military service. It appealed to his passive nature. One executed orders and did not have to worry over the vast problems handled by superiors. Sounds like our guy. Uh, Nicholas went afterwards on a world tour, which he didn't like. He didn't like traveling and he didn't like the places he went to, especially Japan, where a policeman went mad and tried to kill him. I could see where that would sour you on travel just a bit. And maybe on Japan, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, when he returned from his travels, Count Vita suggested to Tsar Alexander III that Nicholas should gain some experience. You know, give him a job. Maybe he could chair the commission for the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway. And Alexander replied, have you ever tried to discuss anything of real consequence with him? <laughs> Vita admitted he hadn't. And the Tsar said, well, he's an absolute child. His opinions are utterly childish. And this opinion is one that Nicholas agreed with. Early in his reign, Nicholas complained to Witte, I know nothing. The late emperor did not foresee his death and did not let me in on any government business. So that's not encouraging either. So I mentioned that he got into the habit of seeing his ministers individually. If they raised a subject that he did not want to discuss, he politely but firmly refused to take notice. And here's where the government of Russia differs substantially from the other countries that we've looked at so far and, and the ones we're going to look at uh, in the next episodes. There's no cabinet. There's no parliament. When I say ministers, these are people that he picks and appoints to a job and they are answerable only to him. He's an absolute monarch in the old, old style. So Nicholas, lacking confidence and not trusting his own judgment, uh, started a pattern of relying heavily on one minister, but then coming to resent that minister and his reliance on him, and then dismissing him. Uh, General Kuropatkin, for example, the war minister, tried to resign in protest when his authority was undermined. And Kuropatkin said, the Tsar might trust me more if I'm out of office. And Nicholas agreed. It is strange, you know, but perhaps that is psychologically accurate. I, I'm not sure that this anecdote is, is true. It, it seems to me very strange that Nicholas would use the word psychologically. Do you know how long that word's been around? It would have been around, but it also remember translation, right? So it could have just been a, a word, an older word from Russian that came back as that, as the best translation by whoever translated it. Okay. okay. I mean, the, the it point sounds the... like a Latin word that would probably be the same in Russian as, <laughs> as English, actually, <clears throat> but who knows? Yeah, I think the point of the story is just that Nicholas realizes his own issues. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do about them. He was fortunate in one sense. He inherited his father's best minister. This is Count Sergei Vita. Uh, industrialization was promoted, as we talked about in the previous episode. And the Trans-Siberian Railway was very much Vita's uh, project. But the more powerful he became, the more enemies he attracted. 
1903, Vita, ha- <clears throat> Vita had a long, uh, friendly audience with the Tsar and, and uh, said, he shook my hand, he embraced me, I returned home beside myself with happiness and found a written order for my dismissal lying on my desk. So <laughs> Nicholas has a little bit of steel, but he, again, he doesn't do it in person at, at one remove. <laughs> Uh, apparently, he believed in three things, the Romanovs, Orthodox religion, and Russia. And to him, these three things were uh, virtually interchangeable, but also inseparable. And he has had a habit of saying things like this. If you find me so little troubled, it is because I have the firm and absolute faith that the destiny of Russia, my own fate, and that of my family are in the hands of Almighty God, who has placed me where I am. Whatever may happen, I shall bow to his will. And I'm pretty sure I could find you a quotation from Charles I that sounds very much like this. It's very, Just that, yeah, that complete faith in absolutism, mm-hmm. because I'm on a mission from God. So as you can tell, Nicholas had a fatalistic streak. Uh, Not surprising, he also dabbled in spiritualism and had a habit of listening to the wrong people. Uh, His mother, his uncles, and his cousins, pretty much all of whom were uh, venal and idle. So they're just lazy, greedy people. And he also had a series of uh, advisors that can only be described as adventurers or charlatans. Uh, one of them was Monsieur Philippe, a former butcher from Lyon. And of course, there's Rasputin. I think we'll have to mention Rasputin a little more uh, when we get to a later phase of the revolution. Oh, I remember you, ta- you talked a lot about Rasputin in our yeah, class. <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a big deal. Not quite what everyone thinks, but yeah. And Nicholas, uh, his marriage didn't help. Um, he had a happy marriage in a sense. Uh, Alexandra was from Hesse Darmstadt, so another German. She was the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. And they liked each other from the start and actually loved each other, but Alexandra had an issue. She couldn't marry an Orthodox uh, prince because she was. Uh, Lutheran, I guess. I don't know. She was certainly uh, Protestant in one form or another. But she made the supreme sacrifice. She gave up her religion and converted to Orthodox. And their wedding was, oh boy, do you believe in bad omens? Because <laughs> their, their wedding, wow, certainly was. So it had been planned uh, while Alexander was still alive, his father. But Alexander died, and they got married a week after his funeral. I don't know why. Maybe, you know, how much planning that had gone into the event could could not be rescheduled, but that's not great timing. And then the coronation ceremony, which was carried out uh, more than a year later, was even more ill-omened. 
So by tradition, there's this great oh, public this celebration. Trampling. Yeah, 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 yeah. I read about that in someone else's book too. You yeah, Kudinsky Fields. So by tradition, there's a great public celebration on the outskirts of Moscow for the common people. And they're going to distribute free beer and sausages along with commemorative gifts like uh, beer mugs with the royal coat of arms stamped on them, this sort of thing. And people came from all over to attend this celebration. Some of them came by train. And apparently half a million people turned up. So here's one occasion when uh, railroads contributed to... The, the crowd was simply too large. And there was a rumor that started that there wouldn't be enough beer for everyone. So the crowd began to push forward, to move forward, and to panic, and then to stampede. Uh, thousands of people were trampled, and over 1,000 were crushed to death. Obviously, a, a great tragedy. And Nicholas' reaction, um, I've read that he sent money to the families of the victims. Uh, I've read that he went to visit some of the injured people afterwards, afterwards. But he also listened to his uncles. That night, as part of the coronation uh, festivities, that night there was a grand ball for the imperial couple hosted by the French. And Nicholas's uncles told him, you can't miss it, that would be an insult to our allies. Nicholas listened to his uncles and made a very bad decision. He and Alexandra went to the dance surrounded by his family and the whole bunch of them just absolutely dripping in jewels. And they danced the same night as, you know, the tragic events outside the city. So whatever he did quietly or privately, he didn't have a good uh, press corps to publicize it. Everybody remembered that they went to the ball the night of the disaster. So Nicholas and Alexandra gained a reputation for heartlessness. And this is another one of the things I think is a prerequisite to a revolution. I, I just call them dramatic events. These, these things stick in people's memories and, and create impressions that you know, may or may not be justified. So it's a bit like the diamond necklace affair uh, in the French Revolution. Uh, still on the subject of Alexandra, she was ultra-religious, as I mentioned, uh, she worked on charitable causes, that's nice, but she was also highly emotional uh, to the point of being neurotic and painfully shy. She was uh, clearly awkward and, and very uncomfortable in public situations. But combined with that, she was also prudish and very unforgiving of the sins of others. If there was someone that she disapproved of, usually their lifestyle or, you know, their affairs or whatever, she would not invite those people to court functions. Well, that happened to that, you know, her, her list ended up including most of the leaders of society. Like Nicholas, she was stubborn. And she, once she had her mind on, you know, one of her favorite people deserves an imperial post, she would support them to the nth degree, regardless of how unqualified and or untalented they were. And many of her favorites were both unqualified and untalented. 
one court official said she had a will of iron linked to not much brain and no knowledge. Hmm. And this is a tendency that's going to cause a lot of trouble later on, notably Rasputin. But, uh, you know, apparently she and her husband were quite happy uh, in their little cocoon of domesticity. They had uh, five children, uh, four girls and a boy, and they were isolated from the real world. So they continued to live the way Nicholas had been brought up in their, in their little bubble. There was one more drawback to the marriage, and that was that Alexandra carried the gene for hemophilia, which normally only strikes males. And their only son, Alexis, had it. He had hemophilia. He nearly died several times as a child. So this and, is the this is a problem where your blood doesn't clot, right? So right. So cut, the just a, a simple bruise or a simple cut could end up killing you. Hmm. Uh, Alexandra was frantically scouring all over Europe for a cure, consulting doctors, charlatans, miracle workers. And finally, Rasputin. So, yeah. <laughs> the, so we'll, hear, uh, we'll hear, we'll he'll come back. Oh my this gosh, This is yeah. a character who we'll, you'll hear about again. Oh yeah, you can't not include him. <laughs> so at this stage, the, the roots of revolution are already spreading. Revolutions don't, you know, come out of nowhere they may, they may begin with a flash of lightning, but there's usually quite a bit behind them. And that's the case in, in Russia. So we mentioned before there were small groups discussing, uh, discussing revolutionary ideas, often Western-inspired ideas. But the industrialization process, the, the social and economic and cultural changes that the West experienced, they're only just beginning in Russia. And it's the members of these groups, the, uh, the educated groups, and maybe some of the early labor leaders, they see themselves as the officers of, of the coming revolution, and they're looking for soldiers. Originally, they're looking at the largest class in Russian society, the peasants. And we mentioned before that the you know young enthusiasts went to the villages to preach revolution, and they were met with... Oh. The disastrous summer of 1874, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and they were met with mostly incomprehension and, and quite often uh, outright hostility. So most of them arrested, exiled to remote areas. They had a little more success in the towns among the urban poor and the skilled workers. There were demonstrations. There were strikes. Uh, the workers leading and, and revolutionaries often assisting. And you have the spread of uh, other ideas, including... Uh, Marxism, starting to spread to Russia in the 1880s. I find this really interesting because Marx wasn't interested in Russia at all. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, I mean, because there's, because of, because we have a, a robust uh, Marxologist tradition. So, you know, there's Marxology and Marxianism and Marxism. So Marx, <laughs> Marx, Marxology is like, uh, Ever, looking at everything, every little thing Marx wrote and trying to figure out whether he wrote about this and what he said about that and whether there's something in his letters or footnotes to the footnotes or whatever. And so there are things that people find about Marx where he, you know, he says certain hints that 
you know, the peasantry is important and it's more important in Russia than it would be elsewhere. And but Yeah, but I think part- that in 1830 and 1848, Marx is pretty clearly looking at Britain, well, France, yeah. maybe, maybe Germany Absolutely. as Absolutely. where the revolution is going to happen. Yeah, and there so I were, think he has his back turned to to Russia. He had many he had many followers in Russia along those lines, notably Trotsky. But we'll get to we'll get to them. Right. <laughs> we'll get to them. In, right. In, but in, one of the earliest yeah. uh, big influences I found was uh, Georgi Plekhanov, mm-hmm. who identified himself as a Marxist, who, and he disagreed with the narodna volya the people's will their tactic was assassination and bombings and and he disagreed with that yeah he had a different approach yeah what would you call him a so a marxist social democrat socialist democrat yeah like yeah i'll have a lot more to say about this debate uh, or the three or four debates on the russian left uh, okay so the point that I want to make here is that Plekhanov's ideas are circulating. He himself went into exile in Switzerland, uh, but he kept connections to the Socialist International, wrote philosophical works and political pamphlets that were smuggled into Russia, and became rather a large influence on the young, educated people. So in addition to reading Western ideas, they're now reading Russian revolutionary ideas. Um, he's insisting that any revolutionary movement has to be based on the industrial working class and that these people, they need more than economic rights. They need political rights. So uh, liberalism for the middle class, yes, we need that as well as Marxism. They're not strong enough at this stage, the workers, to take power away from the government. I keep saying it, but it's really crucial. 90% of the population are peasants working in agriculture. So any, any revolt or uprising in the cities is going to be crushed by the army and the police. When the revolution did finally come, the peasants were involved, but they didn't cause it. They were the consequence, if that makes sense. The, the the regime had faced riots and uprisings before. Yeah. But they're only in real danger when the loyalty of the army comes into question. And the army is mostly peasant. As, uh... Yes, that's true. That's true. And if the army becomes doubtful, that's when the peasants sense weakness. And that's when they will take matters into their own hands. So how did Russia get to a stage where the loyalty of the army became doubtful? Mm. Well, that story has to go further east. So I'm going back just a little bit. This is the lead up to the Russo-Japanese War. In 1894, Japan defeated China and took control of Korea, which we covered in an earlier series, (laughs) I guess I can't can't keep them all straight now. It's been a while yeah, since we did that in, episode, but it was interesting. It was in Civilizations. I think it was probably about a year ago. Yeah. Maybe so the Japanese took control of Korea, and they forced China to sign a treaty, also ceding them the naval base of Port Arthur in Manchuria. Russia didn't want Japan in Manchuria, so they posed as the friend and protector of China and persuaded France and Germany to join them enforcing Japan to return it. So never mind your treaty. We're overruling that. 
it's interesting because that's going to happen to Russia as well uh, at other hands. But uh, basically, Japan is uh, humiliated, and they're not going to forget that. Meanwhile, Russia is extending their Trans-Siberian Railway into Manchuria. And in 1898, just a few short years later, Russia will threaten China and force them to hand over Port Arthur to Russia. And this port is very important because it's an ice-free naval base. The Russians have a naval base at Vladivostok, but it's closed by ice about six months of the year. So Port Arthur, for them, very important. But you can imagine Japan's reaction. You know, you force us to return it to China, and then four years later, take it for yourself. Uh, they're not going to forget that. In 1900, the Boxer Rebellion uh, occurred, and we, again, have covered that in another series. But Russia used this rebellion as an excuse to move troops into Manchuria. And after the Boxer Rebellion was over, those troops remained. The Russians, you know, citing the emergency. But the other powers weren't too happy. It looks like Russia's moving into Manchuria and planning to take it. This is rather a large uh, area. And the other powers protested, but in the end, didn't act. So we covered this in, from another angle just a couple of episodes ago. The British were most alarmed at Russia moving into this area, and they tried to get Germany to support them. There could have been an Anglo-German alliance that might have restrained Russia, but the Germans weren't interested in helping the British with their Far Eastern Empire, and so nothing happened. Now, I'm using an article uh, by J.N. Westwood here, and he says that this, all of this happening is connected to Nicholas dismissing Count Vita, his best minister. So typically, Nicholas listened to the wrong advisors, the adventurers, the greedy courtiers. They wanted a free hand in Korea. Yes, they want the, the naval base, but there are uh, interests in Korean timber, and the shady deals have already been lined up. So they criticize Vita and his policies. Nicholas listens and ends up dismissing Count Vita. And there's also some uh, suspicion that Nicholas was listening to his relative Kaiser Wilhelm, who at this point had gone off the deep end with his paranoia about the yellow peril. Did you know about that stuff? Oh yeah, I mean, remember the speech, right? Or the what, that he sent to the Boxer Rebellion. Oh, in the Boxer off. Rebellion. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, but he went further than that. He uh, yeah. he commissioned or or uh, bought up a bunch of copies of a painting by some European artist. I mean, it's not a particularly good painting, but it's interesting. So, on on one side of the painting is like this Oriental dragon and flames, and oh, looks God. like you know it's escaped from hell. And on the other shore are all the European powers, you know, depicted as um, uh, women in armor. So Britannia with her oh, Athenian yeah. helmet and shield, right? And Germania is pointing at the threat, the yellow peril. <laughs> They're and trying to warn you. Russia by the hand, you know, look. 
and everybody else sees the peril. Britain's pretending they don't see it because mm. they're allied with Japan. But so Nicholas sent copies of this painting to all the all the monarchs <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> like a chain, uh, like a chain email, like send this yeah. to five of your friends. Yeah. yeah, send this to five of your friends, or something bad will happen. Yeah, something like that. So uh, Russia pushing into Manchuria, but they also want Korea, which. Uh, is occupied basically by Japan. Now, Japan might have accepted a deal, some kind of spheres of influence agreement of the kind that the Europeans are making with each other all the time. But Russia has no intention of negotiating with Japan. They figure we can have both Manchuria and Korea. Japanese emissaries traveled to St. Petersburg in 1904 and made no progress. They caught on really quickly. They're not even really talking to us. This is going nowhere. And that helped Japan make up their minds to sign a naval alliance with Britain. Uh, You might remember the terms of this. If either Japan or Britain gets into a war in the East with another power, they will remain neutral. The other will remain neutral. If a third power intervenes, then they will join their partner. So Japan is thinking we can keep Britain neutral and we can fight Russia by ourselves. No progress with diplomacy. They broke off diplomatic relations with Russia and decided that now is the time. Uh, The timing is actually very interesting. The Russians have an absolutely enormous army, standing army. They have a million men in their standing army, but their railway to the east wasn't finished. They also have a fleet in the Pacific, seven battleships. But by 1905, they're planning to have 12. So for Japan, this is the time to strike. And they're thinking, let's get ourselves a quick military success and establish a good bargaining position. If possible, let's win control of the seas. So they determine that their best move is a sneak attack. They're going to attack first, declare war second. So they launch a sneak attack on the Russian fleet in Port Arthur Harbor. Uh, They send in uh, ships and they launch torpedoes. Sixteen torpedoes were launched. Only three of them hit. But Russia's bad luck was just beginning. Two of the hits were on both of Russia's best battleships. They're damaged. The Russian admiral was afraid to come out of harbor with his two best ships damaged, so he allowed himself to be shut into the harbor to be blockaded. And the day after, Japan declared war. Are torpedoes new? Seems like pretty... Uh, There are torpedoes being used in the American Civil War. Wow. So... Oh. That's amazing. <laughs> Does, is, is, is a torpedo like launched from the ship and then it just goes along with momentum or does it have some kind of engine? That's, uh, that's a good question. I've never really thought about the technology. Cause I, I know they, of... I know the early ones miss a lot. There's no guided. Uh, yeah. So you maybe know, it's no like sensors flung. or any, any sense that it's a guided missile. You're basically shooting it in a straight line. So maybe there's an explosion in the in the ship that 
shoots it like a cannonball. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, they're fired out of tubes, torpedo yeah. tubes. I don't know if they have engines, though, to propel them further. Cool. In, in any case, both sides are expecting a short war. That's been the experience of the 19th century. Wars are short, and this should be easy. The Russians are supremely confident. Minister of the Interior Vyacheslav Pleva is actually quite happy. He believes that Russia needs a short, victorious war to take people's minds off the political questions. School children are singing uh, rhymes about how easily Russia is going to win and what's going to happen to uh, the little yellow monkeys, just to uh, bring the scientific racism angle back into play. It, it's quite overt, frightening, but that's the attitude. Wow. Russia has 100,000 troops in the Far East. Japan has 330,000. This is at the beginning. Japanese soldiers are uh, described as hardy and well-trained. They've modeled their army after the Germans. Well-equipped, and the soldiers consider it an honor to die for the emperor. Right. Russian soldiers are also reasonably well-equipped, but they lack good officers, and their tactics are still outdated, especially when you think about modern weapons. So they're still lining up and charging across open fields into rapid-firing rifles and machine guns. The chain of command is also confused, and this is going to be a problem all over. General Kuropatkin is in command of the army on land, and he wants to withdraw. He wants to delay the Japanese, avoid a decisive battle until he's reinforced. Obviously, with those numbers, he wants to wait a bit, and the railway can deliver about 35,000 men a month. But Admiral Alexeyev is not only in charge of the Navy, but he's the viceroy in the Russian Far East. So he interferes with army decisions. And then you have boneheaded officers who refuse to obey Kuropatkin's orders because retreating without fighting would be dishonorable. So there are several occasions when Russian troops uh, resist too long, they stay and fight too long and end up retreating in disorder. There's a battle in May, May 1st, the Battle of the Yalu. The Russians were heavily outnumbered, but they weren't doing badly until the rearguard moved in the wrong direction. And even though the battle is not uh, conclusive, it's still a defeat, and it's the first defeat of a modern European army by an Asian opponent. Now, we've yeah, seen the defeat of a European army by an African opponent, and that sent shockwaves through yeah. the world. This is going to do the same. The Japanese gain confidence, and the Russians wonder, what, what happened to our quick victory? Right. It's a big deal in China, India. Oh, my gosh, yeah. All over. And, yeah. and it will be even, even greater after the war is over. Yeah. Uh, Admiral Togo is still trying to neutralize the Russian fleet in Port Arthur. He's trying to uh, bring them out so he can destroy them. He lays mines. And uh, again, the Russians are extremely unlucky. They have an Admiral Makarov, by far the best they had. He's bold and he's competent. He makes a successful sortie, comes out and attacks the Japanese and does some damage. But on his way back into the harbor, his flagship hits a mine. No idea if it's a 
Japanese mine or a Russian mine, but the flagship hits a mine and sinks, and Makarov goes down with the ship. So the Russians lose their best ship and their best admiral. And meanwhile, Toko's having his own bad luck. Uh, the Japanese lost a cruiser in a collision and then ran into a minefield. Again, I don't know if it was a Russian one or, or their own, but one of his six battleships was sunk and another one was damaged. So the damage to the Japanese is actually significantly greater. Apparently, too, the Russians heard the explosions, but they didn't come out. Had they been bold, maybe if Makarov had still been around, had they come out, they could have defeated the Japanese fleet. They could have won the war, but instead they sat in harbor, licking their wounds. So it wasn't just a mismatch in terms of the militaries. It was actually some serious errors. On both sides. Side. Yeah. yeah, the Russians just were... Maybe more of them, or a couple more of them. Yeah, more errors too. The, yeah. For example, the Japanese army landed near Port Arthur, and it took them a week to land their troops. The Russians didn't interfere. They didn't try to attack by sea, and they didn't try to resist by land. They just let the Japanese land nearby. Right. Then the Japanese attacked Russian positions under General Oku, and they took high losses and made very little progress. The Japanese also thought that you know mass rushes with lots of, lots of enthusiasm could carry enemy positions, and mm -hmm. uh, they didn't. But <laughs> the Russians lost their nerve and withdrew from a strong position. So now they had 60,000 men isolated and besieged in Port Arthur, where they will remain for the, the rest of the war. Meanwhile, Kuropatkin made a stand at a place called Liaoyang. Ten days of fighting, and I find this is a real uh, foreshadowing of World War I, right? These incredibly long battles with enormous masses of troops and heavy casualties on both sides. But the other European powers didn't seem to learn any lessons from it. I, I don't know if they decided that these lessons don't apply because they're from the Far East. Anyway, uh, the Japanese took heavy casualties. The Russians made an orderly withdrawal. And I'm, I'm including this, these facts, this level of detail, to emphasize that the war wasn't entirely one-sided. It's not like the Russians lost every fight or that they made all of the mistakes. Japan had plenty of their own. Just the Russians made, as you <laughs> noticed, more. So this was shocking for the Russian public. Uh, when, the, when the war news is reaching, you know, Western Russia, the public is depressed. They're angry. You know, how, how are we losing? How are we losing, quote, quote to the yellow barbarian dwarfs? I, you know. Yeah, this is not helping. <laughs> no. <laughs> if, if underestimating your enemy is part of the problem, uh... Well, in the modern era, we, we hear about, you know, uh, black soccer players playing in Eastern Europe and being, you know, insulted with racial taunts. Heck, you don't even have to go that far. You have Canadian hockey players, you know, mm. facing racist taunts at the hockey rink. And this is a hundred and some years earlier, you know. Yeah. It's not, unfortunately, it's, the, it's not surprising, even it's though it's still. probably the peak of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, the government, though, um, does an interesting thing. They don't send their best soldiers to the east. They keep their best troops in European Russia. 
and I find this really interesting. Historians have a few theories. So the first is, are they afraid of a surprise attack by Germany, Austria, Britain? You know, are they afraid of a war and we have to keep our best troops here? Or are they afraid of their own people? As, yeah, as I probably mentioned. all of the above. Because <coughs> there, there is quite a bit of, you know, there's the revolution of 1905, but there's quite a bit of revolutionary Preceded by a wave activity. of strikes and disorders, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the result of this, though, is that while they keep the best troops in the West, the reinforcements that are going East are more poorly trained and they're conscripts. You know, they're not all that enthusiastic. It's like, oh, we have to go. So Kuropatkin's army is growing. He now has 220,000 men, but the quality of his army is declining. And the officers are just, frankly, bad. They're just bad. Uh, There's a battle in October on the Shea River. The Russians lose 30,000 men, the Japanese significantly less. So another Russian defeat. Uh, Meanwhile, the Russian fleet blockaded in Port Arthur is finally ordered to break out. Uh, They follow those orders. 25 miles outside the harbor, there's a battle of Round Island, uh, a long-range gunnery duel. So both fleets are firing shells from long range. Admiral Togo was nearly killed. A lieutenant standing beside him, I love this quotation, had the honor of receiving into his body the fragment which would otherwise have killed our admiral. <laughs> Sounds like uh, some of those British uh, or those English uh, schoolboy things, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does. So the Russian gunnery was actually good, at least equal to the Japanese. And Japanese ammunition, a lot of it was defective. So several Japanese uh, guns were put out of action when shells exploded in the breach. So before you can even fire it, it explodes and ruins the the gun. But they got lucky again. Two shots hit the Russian flagship, one of which uh, jammed the helm, so the steering uh, apparatus, and killed the Russian Admiral Viteft. So the leading ship can't steer, and it starts to swerve wildly. And the Russian ships are in line. So when your leading ship starts swerving, you know, are we supposed to swerve with it? So now the whole line is thrown into confusion and they end up retreating. A few of the ships escaped uh, and landed in China where they were interned. The remainder of the ships ended up back in Port Arthur. Now, the Russian general in command there, uh, General Stossel, was so incompetent that after the war, he was considered a traitor. Like, you cannot be this bad unless you are actively trying to help our enemies. For example, he retreated from a strong point on the peninsula, which the Japanese could not take. He interfered with the fleet because he wanted the sailors and the guns available to fight on land. And even with his interference, the Russian fortifications around Port Arthur were uh, formidable. Again, it's a taste of modern trench warfare, right? It's got uh, trenches, fortifications, machine guns, backed by artillery. This is 10 years before World War I, and I don't know why nobody learned don't attack these kinds of positions head on. There was a Russian engineer commander, Kondratenko, uh, who was both competent and brave. 
And every time the Japanese attacked, they made very small gains at the cost of enormous casualties. So waves of attackers being mown down by well-entrenched defenders. And the Russians, in many cases, literally fought to the last man. So the Japanese are not doing very well at this point. But in December, uh, Kondratenko was killed, and the Japanese finally captured a key hill, uh, and, and they can put guns on that hill and then bombard the ships in the harbor. They sunk a couple, the Russians scuttled some more, and General Stossel surrendered. So the Japanese captured Port Arthur, and they are very surprised to find that the garrison had several months left reserves of food and ammunition. So they didn't fight to the last shot, and uh, they weren't reduced to, uh, you know, starvation rations. They surrendered much earlier than they had to. But that capture of Port Arthur is significant because now all the Japanese troops attacking it, about 100,000, are available for service elsewhere. So in Manchuria, north of there, Kuropatkin now has 250,000 troops. He's having trouble keeping them all supplied, so he decided to make a stand at a place called Mukden. The battle lasted two weeks. Remember when battles were fought in a day, in an afternoon? Not anymore. So two weeks of battle, both Mm -hmm. sides suffered 60,000 casualties. Wow. That's a quarter of Kuropatkin's army. So this is machine guns, trenches. Yeah, rapid-fire rifles. Rifles. And outdated tactics, right? You're sending your men in long lines. Uh, Kuropatkin made one mistake, sent his reserves to the wrong flank, Mukden fell, and the army was defeated. Did they retreat? Or did well, they... at this stage, things have changed. They've changed because three months before the battle, uh, the Russian government made an interesting decision. We're going to send our Baltic fleet to the Pacific. Whoa. <laughs> now, I, ba- yeah, I urge you to look Estonia, at a map. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, the Russian Baltic fleet is at St. Petersburg, Yeah, next to Estonia. So they're going to sail through the Baltic. They're going to sail through the North Sea or the English Channel. They're going to go around Britain in one direction, and they're going to sail through the Atlantic. Uh, They are not going to go to the Mediterranean and through the Suez Canal because they suspect, correctly, that the British won't (laughs) let them use the Suez Canal. So they're actually going to sail around the world. Around literally, the world. They're literally sailing around the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they might have sent their Black Sea fleet, but they can't get past Turkey. Turkey will not allow Russian warships to sail uh, through the straits past Istanbul. So, the thinking is that these ships, combined with the ships that are in Port Arthur, would outnumber the Japanese. Uh, will Port Arthur last that long? Um, I I don't know. Westwood says the Russian reasons were never made clear. Um, there's some muddled thinking going on. There's a lot of talk of national honor, but it's pretty clear this is a rather desperate uh, gamble. And it got off to a bad start. It led to the Dogger Bank incident. I don't know if you've ever heard of this one. 
happened October 21st, 1904. So as the Russian Baltic fleet sails past Denmark into the North Sea, they're on their way to the English Channel. And the Russian fleet encountered some boats. They mistook them for Japanese torpedo boats and opened fire. They're British fishing trawlers. The Russians fired on them for 20 minutes. Oh, my God. So it's not like, oops, we fired once, sorry. It's more like we're, we're cannonading these fishing boats. So it raises a couple of questions. What the hell are you thinking? That Japanese torpedo boats would be lying in wait for you in the North Sea? Uh, Again, look at a map. Right. And the uh, British, two, uh... two British sailors were, were killed. One trawler was sunk. Two Russian sailors were killed by their own fire. <laughs> uh, They're fighting the supreme naval power in the world, too. That's not... Yeah, you just shot it. Yeah, yeah. Angry yeah. Right now. Who are allied to Japan. So Jeez. the British were outraged, predictably. And the Russians refused to apologize. They, uh, I don't know if this is one of the first instance, instances of doubling down, but they claimed that they had indisputable proof that the Japanese were planning to attack the fleet. So, I don't know, I did a little measuring. The location of the Dogger Bank is 30,000 kilometers from Japan. So that claim is a little ridiculous. Admiral Rozdestvensky said that it was the fishing boat's fault that they were fired on. You know, they got in his way. Now, I'm only going to mention the Dogger Bank incident, but if you ever want to read in more detail, the, the voyage of these Russian naval vessels is hilarious. They had already fired on fishing boats in the Baltic. They fired at a Swedish ship that they thought was Japanese. They navigated through a non-existent minefield. So the, I, I, what level of paranoia does it require for you to think that the Japanese are waiting for you in the Baltic? I, I don't know how a Japanese ship would even get that far. The ships are running on coal, right? So where are the Japanese going to get coal? More on that in a second. The uh, British mobilized their fleet. This is another uh, crisis that could have come to war very easily. The foreign minister, Lord Lansdowne, insisted that the Russian fleet stop uh, at Vigo in Portugal for an inquiry. And Russian Admiral Rozdevsvenki uh, finally gave in, ordered his ships to go into harbor in Vigo. And there he dropped off several officers who were responsible for the attack. Plus he dropped off another officer that had criticized him. <laughs> There was an inquiry. Russia finally admitted fault and eventually paid 66,000 pounds in compensation. Which is not a lot of money in this time. Well, I guess they only sank one trawler and... <laughs> right. I don't know. What's a fishing boat worth at the time? Right. Anyway. Uh, meanwhile, the Russians headed for Tangiers, Morocco, and lost contact with one of their warships, the Kamchatka. I guess it was last in line. 
and I don't know if it got lost in fog, but for whatever reason, it was separated. When it rejoined the fleet, the captain of the Kamchatka said that he had been in a battle with Japanese warships. He had fired over 300 shells at different... I mean, firing a shell or two is a mistake. Firing 300, good grief. Uh, and the ships that he was firing at were a Swedish merchantman, a, a German trawler, and a French schooner. <laughs> and on their way out of Tangiers Harbor, one of the Russian ships was dragging its anchor, and they accidentally severed the underwater telegraph cable. So this this fleet is just a comedy of errors, uh, and and they're not even a quarter of the way there yet. Uh, as I say, they, they couldn't go through the Suez Canal, maybe because of how much uh, draft the ships require. Maybe the canal's not deep enough for them to go through, or the British aren't going to let them through. But if you think about what they actually accomplished, they sailed around the world without having any naval bases or coaling stations to stop at. Remember in the scramble for Africa, the yeah. idea of having naval bases around the world? You know, Everything so they, the British did was for these coaling stations to get to other coaling stations. Yeah. Right. The Russians couldn't do that, but they had organized something with German help. The Kaiser was willing to help. German coal ships were waiting for them at designated locations, and they transferred the coal by ship's boat. It means shoveling coal off the German coal ship into a small boat, taking the small boat next to the warships and shoveling it on to the warships. What a what an incredible amount of work and, and the forethought, the organization required to do this. Very impressive. So they sailed around the world. Meanwhile, Port Arthur had fallen and the Russian Baltic fleet which is now the Pacific Fleet, were ordered to sail for Vladivostok through Japanese waters. So in May 27, 1905, the Japanese fleet met them in the Tsushima Straits. And that naval battle lasted 24 hours. By the time it was done, the Russian fleet was almost completely destroyed. Almost all of the ships sunk or surrendered. 4,000 men drowned, even more were captured. The Japanese lost 116 men and two torpedo boats. And of the Russian fleet, two destroyers and an armored yacht made it through to Vladivostok. All the rest were lost. Now, the Russian government and the Russian press had been encouraging the, the most optimistic, wildly optimistic hopes for this fleet. Well, now they realize that the war is lost. We've lost on land at Mukden, and we've lost at sea at Tsushima, and we've lost Port Arthur, and we really don't have anything left to keep going with. So now the Russian public realize we actually lost this war, and who, who can you hold responsible? Well, the Tsar and his ministers. They're, they're completely inept. So... How do we get out of this situation? The Tsar is going to have to do something drastic to, to save the situation. Uh, and in comes Teddy Roosevelt to his rescue. American President Roosevelt offers to mediate. Well, the Japanese are in the strong position they wanted, so they figure this is fine. Russia is desperate. 
So in August of 1905, both countries sent delegates to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, Roosevelt originally favored the Japanese. He, he didn't like the Russian autocratic government. And, interesting, he admired the Japanese for launching a surprise attack before declaring war. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He admired that, eh? Yeah. Well, I mean, Teddy wasn't around in 1941, but hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose that is what they do, what they did. Well, Americans did that a lot, right? Uh, to I Native think Teddy Indian just Indian. liked the ruthlessness aspect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, Roosevelt originally favored the Japanese, but the Tsar had, had uh, rehired Count Vita and sent him. And Vita was very smart. He appeared in public frequently. He courted the journalists, generally made a very positive impression on everybody, which, because of linguistic and cultural differences, the Japanese couldn't match. So there's Vita smiling and, you know, talking to everybody and making yeah. a positive impression. And then the negotiations stalled and Roosevelt, he, he was not there in person. He was, you know, smart enough to stay away, but he was getting annoyed. Uh, Roosevelt apparently said, what I really want to do is give utterance to whoops of rage and jump up and knock their heads together. <laughs> Sounds like a real mediator. This is this is how all this is how all mediators behave and feel. Uh, well, they, yeah, they want to anyway. <laughs> so eventually, they signed the treaty, the Treaty of Portsmouth. Russia recognized Korea as part of the Japanese sphere of influence, and they agreed to evacuate Manchuria. They signed over their twenty-five year lease on Port Arthur, and they gave up the southern half of Sakhalin Island. There was question of whether they would be uh, paying an indemnity. Remember that the Germans started this with forcing France to pay an indemnity after the Franco-Prussian War. But Count Vita, you know, refused to do so and eventually the Japanese accepted, you know, we'll take the territory and, and do without the indemnity. Uh, one of the offshoots of this treaty, Teddy Roosevelt won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, he did an excellent job of balancing Russia and Japanese power in the Orient, where the supremacy of either constituted a threat to growing America. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, enough said. So Japan had won pretty much every battle on land and sea. But back in Japan, public opinion was quite angry. The, the people the Japanese people didn't understand that that the expense the cost of the war had pushed the country to the verge of bankruptcy the government are happy to sign the treaty and end the war because they can't afford to keep going the Japanese public don't know that so the treaty seems to them not enough they wanted an indemnity and and they wanted more territory so they're going to be angry at Roosevelt and the U.S. for apparently oh. cheating Japan out of its rightful claims at the peace conference. Yeah. Uh, September 1905, the Hibiya incendiary incident, anti-American riots in Japan, that's how they were described. Uh, so in Tokyo, three days of rioting that forced the government 
to declare martial law. Hmm. Interesting, eh? You win the war and you're angry. Well, yeah, win the war, lose the peace, right? As they... Well, I think they did okay in the peace. They also did okay. (laughs) But they did really well in the war. (laughs) Yeah. So Russia's defeat met with shock and consternation in the West. How how could a European power, a major European power, lose to Japan? Yeah, this is exactly like uh, Abyssinia, isn't it? It's it's exactly oh, the same. Maybe so the now, Ethiopians are actually white. Maybe the Russians are actually Asian. <laughs> right. This conflicts with racial theories, scientific racism. So yeah. how how do you reconcile this? You have to present scientific the racism is obviously obviously wrong. Oh wait, no, maybe it isn't. No. What if we can, we can work this? We can work this out. Yeah. What if the Russians aren't really European? Yeah. There you go. Right? They've had an awful lot. They were invaded by the Mongols. They've had a lot of Asian influence. <laughs> so then if the Russians are actually Asians, this is a war between two yeah. Asian powers. None of none of our business. Nothing to do with Europe. N- yeah, yeah, scientific racism is still validated. And maybe, you know, maybe, look at what the Japanese have done. They're like the only Asian country that have industrialized and have a modern fleet and that wear uniforms like us and they've copied the Germans and the English, maybe the Japanese are kind of like super Asians. <laughs> and that, that would also help explain how they could defeat a larger. But yeah. And like we said in Asia, it's a, it's the opposite, right? It's like, they're not invincible. Oh no! Means, no, yeah. In, yeah, you you're going to we're going to meet in the future quite a number of Asian leaders for whom this outcome yeah. <laughs> was not only mind-boggling but changed their worldview, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Russian prestige obviously suffers, and it also affects their allies, uh, France mm-hmm. and Serbia. Because the timing is, of this defeat is not great for them. Yeah. Japanese prestige, of course, rises. And after all of their experiences of racial discrimination when dealing with Europeans, the Japanese have learned an interesting lesson. Yeah. Win a war and suddenly they're all nice. Different. Yeah, you're in a different category. I mean, I guess, they, I guess that's how they got into imperialism in the first place, right? Was... Um, but, but they were fighting China for the most part. Yeah, I think they had their own economic and, and yeah. uh, intellectual imperatives. But this is certainly a contributing factor. Yeah. yeah. Like, like uh, it's like they've adopted Teddy Roosevelt's yeah. uh, statement, right? Speak yeah. softly and carry a big stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Teddy doesn't follow that, but Japan will. <laughs> yeah, commit genocide in the West and speak with a lot of bluster. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But now the, the Japanese, same difference. Now the Japanese have a foothold in China, and this is just the beginning. You know, we've got Korea, we've yeah. got a foothold in Manchuria, and this we can start thinking of expansion from there. Yeah. And every all the other Europeans are there, so we get into this. How are we going to divide it up? Problem. Mm-hmm. And of mm. course, one of the biggest impacts of the Russo-Japanese War was that for Russia, it led pretty directly to the Revolution of 1905. Yeah, which we will devote 
proper amount of time to uh, next. 